Hello and welcome to Something to Think About Over the Weekend, a podcast where my father and I, Rabbi Avi Horowitz, and myself, Ayala, will go into depth discussing ideas that are relevant and meaningful to our lives today based on the weekly Torah portion, otherwise known as the Parsha. These are always chock full of ideas that present us with amazing opportunities to explore all kinds of things, subjects, topics, and anything else that comes up, really. Our hope is to widen your horizon with our questions and conversations, different viewpoints and thoughts on the weekly Parsha so that you will indeed have something to think about over Shabbat. Shabbat is such a great time to relax. It gives us the luxury of time to think about life, our relationships, issues, anything really that comes up. So with no further ado, here is something to think about. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another podcast about something to think about over the weekend. This week, we're going to be talking about an exciting issue that has to do with Judaism's attitude towards proselytizing. Proselytizing, that's a big word. And in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, it says something interesting, that the noun proselyte comes from the late Latin noun proselytus, which means a stranger or an alien resident. And the word actually entered English in the 17th century, and it has a distinctly religious connotation and means simply to recruit religious converts. Basically, even though we use the word proselytize for other things, the question is, what is Judaism's attitude towards proselytizing people to, let's say, become more religious? Um, the idea to proselytize seem to, seems to indicate that you want to sway people's behavior to change in a certain direction. Um, it doesn't seem to be just proselytizing just to, like, let people know stuff. It's also uh, has a connotation of wanting to sway people's opinion, at least that they should think differently, if not actually change their behavior. So what's Judaism's take on this? Are Jews proselytizers? What do other monotheistic beliefs do? Are they proselytizers? I think it's important to make a differentiation, though. Are we talking that um, if Jews proselytize to one another or is it are we trying to to amass congregants from around around the areas like is it are we talking about the importance of um, us convincing other peoples and our neighbors who are maybe doing less or more than us you know oh you should really do this or you should really do that or are we trying to amass more people and bring them quote-unquote to the light Right, right. So that's an important point. I yell it. Um, we need to distinguish the attitude of Judaism towards its own versus towards others who are not Jewish. Is there a difference? And one could ask it this way. Well, if proselytization, or let's say converting someone to an idea, um, is, that, is based on that, well, I have a certain truth that I want to share with other people, then why would that uh, be a difference between proselytizing um, from our, our own versus proselytizing others who are not Jewish? Like, why are we into just recruiting people to a certain truth and not others? 
That's also part of the major question we want to deal with today, try to explain um, and get to a better understanding of that idea after we explain um, what Judaism's position is. But let's take a case in point. <clears throat> As I said to Ayala before we started the interview, um, let's use something little picante, which is Spanish for like spicy. sharp and spicy. Um, Chabad Lubavitch. Lubavitch is a huge movement that started in Belarusia in 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 uh, all the way you know in uh, in Russia you know hundred couple hundred years ago it's a Hasidic movement and one of the things that characterizes today's Hasidic movement called Lubavitch is their proselytizing tactics that's what it looks like anyway if you can you can walk down a street in Manhattan and um, you shouldn't be surprised to see some very obviously looking Chabad shlichim, or they're called, you know, emissaries, who are wearing very typical Hasidic garments or um, however you want to call it, a fedora and a, and a suit, white shirt. And they are asking people that are just minding their own business walking by and they're saying, hey, are you Jewish? And besides the fact that I've always been amazed how they could possibly do that without like dying of embarrassment, but they just do it day in and day out. Hey, are you Jewish? And, you know, all the types of reactions you can imagine they get from people on the street. And if the person actually says, yeah, they said, they'll say something like, well, have you put on tefillin today? And tefillin are, you know, phylacteries that Jews wear in the morning. Uh, we put on the morning tefillin. Have you put on tefillin? And they'll, and they'll do like, let's do the commandment of putting on tefillin. And they'll put on tefillin for them right there and then you know, in the middle of a Manhattan street, doesn't matter, rain or shine. And the, um, it's just a sight to see. You can see a lot of um, Hanukkah cars and mitzvah tanks and all well, kinds the of cars with the speakers, with the speakers, you know, with the, with the mounted menorah on the top and singing and, you know, and um, uh, I mean, if you haven't seen this before, I don't know where, where you're, you're living because they're living. everywhere. <laughs> yeah, well, my, on this case, I mean, my brother um, had a friend who was in Alaska, believe it or not, send him a live pic from a, a slope, a ski slope in Alaska. And the person is taking the selfie like in this direction, like at themselves. And in the backdrop, on the middle of the slope, there's two uh, Lubavitch Hasidim there. One is holding a pair of tefillin. And one is holding uh, Nerot of Shabbat, of uh, candles, to light candles in Shabbat, which is also a mitzvah. So it, the, <laughs> the person's like smirking, like, could you imagine? Like, there's a joke that says, you know, how do you know there's no life on the moon? And the answer is, is because, well, it was because the Chabad still has not sent emissaries. They haven't sent shlichim to the moon. So it must be there's no one there. <clears throat> Indefatigable. Um, work that they do and anyway getting any back to the fact that we're talking about chabad because you want to know what the heck are they doing and do we agree as a ideal yes so we is an interesting thing do we agree i don't think we're here to discuss you know to judge we're here to think about it that's what we're here to do and We'll think about it the way we know how to think about it, and we'll see um, what 
what we can do with uh, understanding Chabad. I myself have come to a, a much greater understanding of what they do, even though I must admit that originally I was um, perhaps one of a crowd of our constituency that was not really in favor of that type of activity. But I want to put a face on it that's very, very um, understanding and, and even more embracing of that type of attitude that I believe after over years of uh, interaction with Chabad Shlichem around the world, I've be- begun to understand. So this is the issue. So the reason why we're talking about this issue this week is because of our patriarch Abraham. The tradition tells us, as it says in the Sukim, says in the verses, that Vayikra B'Shem Hashem, that Avram very often is mentioned as building an altar and calling out in the name of God. What in the world does that mean? You can imagine a person on a hilltop building an altar and calling in the name of God. I mean, who, who you know, you, sounds, a little, sounds a little loony, you know, right? You, you imagine a person up there by himself. That's not really what's going on. Um, um, our tradition is uh, very clear that calling in the name of God means nothing less, nothing more than introducing the concept of monotheism in the world. Calling out in the name of God, of Yudke Vavke, of the, 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 the Tetragrammaton, is basically a way of introducing people to God. And in the pagan world, that was a big deal. And we have all kinds of other... Um, apocryphal stories about Avram and the tradition about Abraham, how he got people to think about that concept of one God and not, you know, a bunch of uh, uh, polytheistic uh, types of beliefs of uh, different gods. He, he, He was convinced after many, many years of thinking about it and philosophizing about it to himself that there is actually one God. And he therefore becomes the source of Judaism, he is the beginning of actually two monotheistic, at least three monotheistic beliefs, sorry, Christianity and Islam as well, come from the Abrahamic um, source. And that's why it's interesting. Today, the the accords with the uh, Muslim countries around Israel are called the, Abraham, the Abrahamic Accords, if I'm not mistaken, and because they're trying to touch with those words, the things, um, well, the, the, the bedrock that we have in common with, you know, with the Muslims in the world. So, in any case, we have Abraham. He's calling out the name of God and seemingly proselytizing people, right? Because there is a source in last week's reading that says that the nefesh asherasu b'charan, that the entourage of Abraham actually included not only his family, but souls that they made that they influenced to like hang with them like oh, to the be chillers them. yeah <laughs> like um, i had a cousin used to say like the holy beggars like the people who are ideologically in sync with you and they want to draw from your source and they're hanging around with abraham and these are his students and our tradition says that he actually created the idea in the world of monotheism i mean that is huge that's huge. So when we study his example, we can get insight into what it is that we're talking about when we talk about proselytizing in a way that we would like to emulate. Okay, because as we spoke about last week in last week's podcast, one of the basic ideas of Judaism is that the figures in the Torah that are heroic 
in our tradition are those that we try to emulate. And his approach to proselytizing or to, let's say, talking to people, convincing people about a truth is something that we want to emulate. So what we need to do here in this podcast is try to discover uh, some insight as to how it was done, because we can imagine many ways of how it should not be done. And that's what I'd like to talk about now. So like I yell at, what do you think would be a way that, you know, if you feel you have a truth, what would be a way that you don't want to proselytize with your truth? Like, what would that look like? Well, if I, if I believed that I held the truth of something, I definitely wouldn't want the truth to be something that when exposed to other people um, creates either dysfunction or I'm looking for a word like it, it creates mal malfunction, the destruction of, of positive construct. Well, that's a big word, but you mean, you mean that if I introduce like these religious ideas to someone um, I'm going to be doing them more harm than good. Is that what you mean? Yeah. I, Cause I believe that truth is a good thing <clears throat> inherently. So if, if I'm going to be presenting a truth um, if the truth destroys the the goodness, essential goodness, right? Because you have then you have to understand that some people will classify goodness even though it's not really good for them. That's the coaching. But um, um, I think it's important then that with the understanding that truth is good, that the introduction of truth to other people won't be something harmful to them. So maybe what you mean to say is. Um... That it's you, a person needs to do it piecemeal. A person should not uh, just avalanche the other person with their truth. A person should do it in a way that's adequate and timely and sensitive and sh- reveal more and more of whatever it is that a person wants to teach and not just like do it all in one shot because it could be too overwhelming. Right, meaning, like, I, the, the, the image I have in my mind is someone, you know, spilling the beans, the whole can, all at once, and this person's drowning in beans, and suddenly he's, like, breaking ties with family and disappearing and totally lo- loses all sense of, of self and understanding of how things work, and now this person is totally disconnected to everything and everything that once was, and now in this new reality, but doesn't really understand that much. It's It's, like, a total chaos of revelation or, or information and it's just won't do very well. Right. So, so you're taking like more of an effective approach. Like if it's, if it's going to be effective with an E, so then, uh, you know, but just go for it and use your influence and share with other people the truth that you have, hopefully so that you can sway them in the direction that you want them to be swayed. I have an issue with that though. <laughs> because the way the way I see it is that if I have a truth, right? If if I'm in possession of truth with it, which like I said before is essential goodness, I want you to I want you to know what it is because it's good for you. Ooh, so now you're jumping. But that's beautiful what you're just saying. Okay. I'm not trying to get you to a certain to do things like me. I'm trying to share goodness with you. Okay, well, you took a as we say in Spanish, a corta camino. You're jumping to a great point, and let's we can put it on pause. Let's take apart. <laughs> let's take apart the point that you're saying, and, and like rewind a little bit. 
So let's talk about, in general, in the world today and historically, how proselytizing has been viewed. Um, I don't know about you, Ayelet, but I would say in the world today, the idea of proselytizing anybody for anything, because the proselytizer feels that they have a truth, whew, that's not very popular. Um, that already is smells like microaggression. Microaggression. That sounds like a microaggression because you're already imposing by saying that you have a truth that should be really my truth. That is already quite offensive for many people in the world today, especially the younger generations. It's threatening. It sounds threatening. And that's why we live in a post, so, so to speak, post-truth culture where truth is like a scary thing. Truth sounds way too objective for anybody to handle. Well, Judaism is not afraid of truth. And if something is true, then we should embrace it. And if something is true and you know it and I don't, I would want you to share it with me. That's Judaism's take on that. However, there are nuances about how to approach other people. And the question is that we're trying to focus on over here is what should the approach be? What should be the attitude? Now, again, when we step back and look at modern culture, we just summarized it in like a really super duper uh, brief nutshell by saying that it's like not the most popular thing and proselytizing is kind of like an ugly term today. But historically, proselytizing, or maybe even let's use a better word, like convincing people, arguing about truth, arguing about what is true, is, you know, starting from, let's say, the sophists in, in ancient Greece, that was a way of life. And that was a welcome way of life. Of course, debates can sometimes get ugly and they can create war and everything like that that we're aware of. And perhaps the, react, the modern reaction is to just say, look, if the choice is debating truth, you know, until it turns violent, we'd rather just not have violence and, and just leave the truth on the side and let everybody decide whatever it is that they want. Of course, I'm oversimplifying like right, hundreds right. and hundreds of years of history, maybe thousands of years. But basically, for, for, for our podcast, suffice to say that... Um, there's been a lot of proselytizing in the world, and a lot of times it hasn't looked like debate. When we compare ourselves, Judaism, to other monotheistic religions, um, there are interesting contrasts there to be made. And, of course, there are different takes on it, but I don't think anyone can differ with the basic contrast, which is Christianity and Islam have basically been proselytizing type of religions that would force, in one way or another, the non-believer to believe and to accept their truth. All the crusades and conversions and... Well, yes. I mean, we've had plenty of our own um, ancestors being burnt at the stake because of their own beliefs. And that means that they weren't willing to accept, you know, the Catholic doctrine. So... That was the end of them. And, of course, in Islam, Islamic lands, you know, a lot of that took place also. Cert, certain uh, epochs saw more passive, um, what today we call passive-aggressive, but passive, not as violent um, type of proselytization. 
And because this is not a historical podcast, we're not going to get into that, but I challenge anyone that's listening to say otherwise. I mean, th this is a fact of history that the basic monotheistic religions are proselytizers. Judaism, on the other hand, is not a proselytizing religion. So that turns the thing on its head. One second. It, it's not a proselytizing religion to the degree that we're saying now where there, are, there weren't any forced massive conversions. We're not going out and um, calling people to convert to the truth or else. Right. Because we still haven't really decided if, if what we do every day would be proselytizing within, within our own circles, which is something that we call Kiruv. Which right. I thought was a good point that we didn't touch. How do we view Kiruv? Is that also... Well, yeah. Well, you made that point er er earlier by saying, you know, what's the difference between those that are within uh, Judaism who are Jewish and what's the difference between those that are not Jewish? So what is that difference? But certainly towards the non-Jewish world, Judaism has never seen itself as a proselytizing religion. And that itself begs the question. Um, you know, besides the fact that there are you know, those naysayers out there that are saying, well, really, maybe Judaism is a proselytizing religion, just that you, you know, you guys have been so weakened or so not in a position of power to actually proselytize people. So that's why you haven't do it, done it. But if you look in the Torah, you know, the, certainly within the confines of the land of Israel, it does seem like a proselytizing religion. I mean, there's something called the Ger Toshav, that people who live in Israel have to accept certain beliefs. To which I would say, that's a good point. However, you know, if you're in my backyard, if you're living in my house... you got to play with my rules. Right, you have to play with my rules. But if you're um, somewhere else, I'm not going to go chase you, or I'm not going to create um, a, a culture of conquest where I physically conquer lands in order to proselytize people, which is basically like the Crusades or, or um, the way... Uh, Islam conquered, you know, all of Europe and, and uh, many other lands uh, uh, in order basically to, to, to create a caliphate, to create a world of Islam. So we don't share that with the other monotheistic religions. But then, again, as we said, that turns the question in the opposite direction. Why, if you or I, I yell it, feel that we have a truth, and we want to share it with someone. Why would we not share it with those that are not our co-religionists? Only co-religionists or Jews, let's say, we would be interested in sharing it. But with those that are not, we wouldn't. Why? I mean, if after all, I have a truth, if I feel I have a truth, why would I draw that line? So does truth always apply to everybody? Right. I mean, isn't, isn't that the point? If, if it is a truth that we say Judaism contains, so why wouldn't we want to share it with the whole world? Right. So this part of the podcast is going to have to get a little nuanced, but we're going to throw it out there and then we'll get back to the bigger issue. The nuance is, is that it depends. <laughs> the big, it depends, right? It depends what it is that you want to spread. So like Abraham, if we're talking about monotheistic beliefs, so then as Jews, we do believe that spreading monotheistic and universal values, and when I say universal, I mean values that 
even according to the Jewish tradition, are not given specifically for Jews, because what's interesting about the Jewish tradition, the Torah, the, the, the Bible, the, the, the tradition of the Torah, of the law, is that actually there is law within the Torah for Jews and non-Jews. I'm sure that will come as a surprise to many non-Jews. Um, perhaps at this day and age they've heard of, let's say, the seven Noahide laws and other things. But we have to realize that the, the development of the Torah itself, of the story and the narrative of the Bible, starts with the creation of man. And there, there was no Jews. We only talked about Jews when we start talking about a family which starts with Abraham, which could have gone in a lot of different directions. But eventually it consolidates into a people that go through Isaac and Jacob and his children that eventually culminate into the people that receive the Torah on the mountain of Sinai. That's the way the Torah presents to us the story of the Jewish people. So you don't really talk about specific Jews until really um, certainly um, the giving of the Torah, but perhaps when Abraham comes on the scene. But that's not so much the point as that there's plenty of stuff and teachings that go on before the appearance of Jewish people, right? what we call Jewish people, the Bnei Yisrael, the people of Israel. So the children of Israel appearing on the scene take more and more responsibility to reflect God's will, let's say, in the world. But there's a there's God's will that that applies to everyone. So if, let's say, you or I have a truth about God or about basic ethical life, right? Don't steal. And we feel that we should make a seminar about the importance of not stealing, not stealing anything, perhaps even intellectual property, perhaps other, you know, modern, interesting things. Um, don't damage other people in any way, you know. Do no harm. Do no harm. Those types of things, um, we would find plenty of examples of Jews along, even traditional Jews, who have dedicated a lot of their time to try to illuminate um, with our own insights, our own specific type of insights into these laws so that there can be more compliance in the world to these, what I'm calling universal values. So let's be clear right away that when we're talking about taking a truth and spreading it, when it comes to those truths that are more universal, there really is no difference between Jews and non-Jews. Maybe there's a preference because a person would say, well, if I only have a certain amount of time during the day, I'd rather spend it on my own family than go out to who knows where, to Timbuktu, to try to spread the light. So that has to do with personal preference and, you know, a general preference towards one's own versus others, which I don't think we can blame or we can say, well, that's wrong or anything like that. It's just is. It just you, is. Yeah, you just have only a certain amount of resources you're dealing with. So when we're talking about universal values, you know, that's the way it's going to be question is, what about other truths that are more specific to the Jewish people? So if we think there's a, there's a truth that's specific to the Jewish people, if it's still a truth, so why can't we just share it? Why can't we share it with everyone? Right? What, why is there this um, thing of like that maybe there's an imperative to share it with other Jews, but not share it with non-Jews? So that becomes um, a nuanced issue, which, what do you think about that? Do you want to chime in on the I'm just going back that. I'm going back to my question of you know it's it seems like there are definitely truths like that what you're calling universal truths 
which apply to everybody, which then come down to each individual person as to how they wish to go about spreading that information and that knowledge and that truth. But then it seems to me that there are certain truths that belong within certain circles because it does not apply to everybody. Mm. I, I, I don't have an issue believing that there are some truths that don't apply to everybody. Mm. And, it, and it could still be truth. Interesting. Okay, so let's go with, let's run with that. I want to just throw one other angle there that I happen to have um, had an interesting story about um, that uh, illuminates this idea. I, I, when I was teaching law um, in the law school of um, the University of Chile, I was teaching not any old law, I was teaching Jewish law. It was the first time Jewish law was ever taught in this history of of the country called Chile in South America. And how I got into the university is an interesting story, which I'm not going to tell now. But what I want to bring out was that in this particular class of mine, there was sometimes Jewish kids that used to come through the class, mostly non-Jewish people, uh, students. But once there was a boy who actually was an exchange student from the United States, and I still remember him like yesterday. And he, after a class, he walked over to me and said, you know, he said, um, I, I, I've been in this country for a good couple months. And a lot of my friends and acquaintances from the class are always asking me, like, what is it that you believe that makes you feel that you're Jewish? I mean, why don't you just choose not to be Jewish? I mean, you can choose not to be Jewish. This particular boy felt very uh, proud to don his kippah, to put on his yarmulke, his uh, head covering. Skull cap. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Every day. Um, And he was, you know, he would suffer a lot because of it. And he was kind of saying to me, like, why am I Jewish, really? Like, it seems to be so um, ephemeral. Like, maybe I could just not be Jewish. Right. And... It was the first time that somebody had actually come to me to question this. And, and, and in that backdrop, I was like, so I felt so good to be able to tell him that there is an essential difference about what it means to be Jewish versus what it means to be Catholic or Islam, even according to, of course, the strictures of Catholicism or Christianity and Islam. And that is that um, a person is Jewish because you were born Jewish. You were born to a Jewish mother. That's it. That's what makes you Jewish. You're Jew by birth. And in, in, in Christianity and Islam, it's much more fluid. When you take on something, you, you accept the faith, then you're a Christian. You know, you, you say, I accept Muhammad and uh, Allah, then you're Muslim. It's, it's not as essential. It's not as a, a definition that's that, you know, intrinsic in the identity of the person. It's not about being born that way, right? The person could be born from uh, in Christianity, but not necessarily be a Christian until they accept upon themselves these things. And I think that's important to mention in this context that Ayala is bringing up, because when if we're talking about being the essential definition of a, being a Jew is a Jew by birth, that means that it's a role. Judaism sees being a Jew as almost a biological role, it's just like you would imagine yourself being born in a certain set of circumstances. 
physical and other, that makes you who you are right now. That's who you are. And therefore, sharing the tradition with that person makes sense because it's a truth that you have that really belongs to this person because it's, a, it's the definition that they own by being born a Jew. It almost sounds like you're talking about inheritance. Exactly, exactly. And that's actually the word that the Torah uses, Torah Tzivalanu Moshe, Morashaki Latiakov, that the Torah is actually an inheritance. The Torah is an inheritance. So it's almost like if I'm going to make preferences about where I'm going to spend my time, besides what we said before about just the feeling of family, but this is a feeling of like pert- of um, belonging. Now, this is a feeling of like, who am I going to teach the truth that I feel that I have? Who am I going to share with? I'm going to share with people. When I look at them, I say, you know, this really belongs to you. So I want to give it back to you, right? Whereas if I go to a person who's not Jewish, I am introducing something to them that might be interesting, but it's a totally different world when there's an, I, I don't have any assumption to start with to say that this belongs to them. It's just something that they might be interested in. But it's not, I'm not like giving back a lost object that really belongs to this person. So it's a different thing. And I think that really brings us in to our last issue, which is how do we look at Abraham and his motivation for doing this type of what Ayelet called Kirov, which is a modern day way of saying like proselytization or, you know. Closening. <laughs> closening. <laughs> bringing somebody closer to a truth that belongs to them, as we're saying before. In that, there can be a lot of motivation, different types of motivation. And I, in my lifetime, have seen a lot of different kinds. And um, unfortunately, I don't um, see eye to eye with a lot of different types of motivation. I think they become sometimes egocentrical. Sorry, egocentric. Because if a person says, look, I have a truth and I want to share it with somebody, that position of I have a truth I want to share with somebody can take many, many um, expressions. It could be like, I have the truth, and you, unfortunately, don't. So, you know, why don't you be more like me? You, you see me? You're like, I got it. It's like when you look at two children and one child says, uh, oh, I got it, I got it. You know, and the first thing is like you, that child feels like, oh, he has something that the other one doesn't have, and it becomes like a power thing. Like, I have it, you don't. Like, now I can manipulate you. Like, oh, you don't get it? Or, come on, don't you get it already? Or like... One, if you get it, you could be like me, and then I'll make me feel good because I'm like all full of insecurity. And therefore, when I give it to you and you do stuff like me, so that makes me feel, since I'm the purveyor of this truth, that makes me feel like, oh, yeah, I'm like, yeah, that's just like totally builds me up. Right? It's like a validation that what you're teaching is indeed correct because someone else is also doing it. Exactly. So I really feel that those types of motivations are not the really good correct, or even helpful sometimes, or effective motivations. I, th- I, f- I find that there are side effects to those types of motivations that can create unfortunate situations. Um, you know, I've seen it in, in my, in my uh, experience that when motivation looks like that, sometimes a certain amount of pettiness gets into it. And when third parties are affected, let's say you're influencing a particular young student and you're like we said you know you you feel you're giving him back his inheritance his tradition his 
Messorah, his Judaism. If you do it in a way that's somewhat conceited, eventually it will always come out and people will always say that this is basically a kind of brainwashing. Right, I was going to say that's the main, um, uh, what's the word? Like the main claim that people always... Uh, complaint. Com- yeah, the main complaint that people have against... Um, even within the Jewish circles, when, when, you know, when your, when your kids or your siblings, parents go to something and they're, they get taught something and then they come back with new ideas and you're like, ah, you're brainwashed. Right. It's like this fear that it's not that they have the truth, but they're following someone else's truth. Exactly. Now I'm not saying there's a foolproof way out of that problem because there's always people that are going to be suspectful, um, when it comes to, you know, the fact that their life has changed. And I certainly, after many years of seeing it, I certainly don't want to underestimate the difficulty that that entails. Perhaps we'll dedicate a podcast to that because that is a huge issue. You know, people change their lives and the collateral effects to their family and to themselves, you know, really needs to be examined well. But to get back to the major point here, This is why we need Abraham. This is why we need his example. I believe Abraham's example is the basis for real empathetic sharing of truth. And what I mean by that is, in our sources, the Rambam, Maimonides speaks of it, what we see the example of Abraham is, is a person who honestly loves God. What does that mean when a person honestly loves God? He loves God because he feels that the belief in God is the best thing that anyone could ever have in in life. That's just the best belief you can have in life from so many, so many dimensions of life. It's, it's the best thing. It's What makes it the truest thing also manifests itself as being the best thing. And you know, regardless of the difficulties that a person might have by being a monotheist or by being a believer in God, Abraham was 100% sure in all of his being that this was the best thing. So when you have the best thing and you also care for others, you also love others. You also care for others. You're empathetic. You look at others and you want to share with them the best. So you'll share with them the best thing that you have. Just like I always say, you know, when you're watching a TV program and you see, you know, this amazing scene or or something really funny or you're watching a, a, a sports cast and you're, you see amazing play. The first thing you do is you look to the right and the left. Is there anybody there? Are you seeing this? To share it with. Right. Because that, it's an automatic reaction. Like you, you all of a sudden were totally overwhelmed by this feeling of like goodness of having something amazing. When you have something amazing, you want to automatically share. Well, Abraham lived his life that way. That's what drove him. He has something amazing. He wants to share it with everyone. That's um, sometimes what other religions call gospel uh, and other religions call other things. But the motivation is not explained in other religions. And here in our in our tradition, I think it's so explicit. It's so beautiful. It really happens to be, I feel, the not just a healthy way of going about it, but it's like. It's so, it's such a beautiful process and it's so unassailable. I mean, who could, who could ever have a problem with, you know, you, a yell at, 
wanting to share something beautiful that you have. I mean, and it's not because you're doing it for any other reason. It's just because because you're so you're such a person that just believes that you have the best thing ever. It's like when you're a kid, you know, and you feel your dad's like amazing or your mom is like amazing. You know, you just say, well, my dad is like this. You know, why don't you come over and you can even see him? <laughs> <laughs> like, don't you want to see my daddy's so cool? Right. So that doesn't last too long. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not anymore. I haven't heard that in who knows. But it, it's the same idea. It's like you want to. So, of course. When you break that down, a person needs to ask himself, well, am I that Abrahamic type of person? Do I really feel that Judaism is like so amazing? Well, if you don't, maybe you shouldn't be the person that's spreading the light. Because there's always going to be that feeling of like, why are you doing this? Why are you doing it? If you have your own beef with Judaism... And you're saying, you know, well, you know, Shabbat is cool, but it's not so cool. It's like, you know, I really would rather. Well, then what are you doing spreading Shabbat? I mean, the mitzvah of Shabbat. Or what are you doing spreading the truth of anything in the Torah? If you're not really sure that being Jewish is like really what you want deep down. Or the attitudes or the things that you learn are really like you haven't thought about it as a whole and come to grips with it. And not only come to grips with it, but actually embrace it and love it. I, I wouldn't suggest that you should be that person. Now, are you going to tell me I just cut the Kirov army in half? Well, so be it. I don't know if I have or I haven't. But that brings us back to Chabad. I really, really believe after many years of talking to Shluchim and learning a little bit about what the Rebbe, um, the Rebbe of Chabad, who passed away some decades ago, really believed in. I believe that what I've garnered from them is that these acts of like wanton, you want to do a mitzvah? Are you Jewish? You want to do a mitzvah? Just comes from the desire to do chesed, what we call is kindness to Jews. Acts of kindness. An act of kindness. A random act of kindness is is what is called today. Um, Instead of going up and hugging someone, which, you know, we've seen enough of those videos, which in and of itself, I must say, is pretty nice. <laughs> I haven't seen too many, maybe one or two, but it's like, wow, that's, that is pretty nice. You know, just a, a random act of kindness. I think if that person giving a hug to somebody really felt like cynical, I, I don't think he would be very successful at hugging people. You know, so when Chabad is in the streets of Manhattan and they're offering people to put on tefillin, I really believe that in the, you know, in their teachings, what you can find is that they're really doing it just to do chesed. If they're going to find a Jew, you know, forgetting all the trappings and the and what how it looks and everything like that, they're just willing to go out and say, you know, I feel so comfortable about this and I feel so comfortable in my own skin. I'm going to sit on a slope in the middle of Alaska because I want to give to people where they're never going to be able to receive something so good that I have that I want to share with them. If you think of it that way, it's like truly inspiring, truly inspiring. It really flips um, the the image of uh, proselytizing 
around because the way the way we see it is that there are people who feel like they know better than us and they're coming from this place like i know what's best ma 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 and they're coming and they're like do you want to talk about the bible and you're like oh yeah you're gonna come you're gonna tell me why i'm wrong right and you're so intelligent you're so smart yeah go have a coffee somewhere else right but really when you come to this understanding it's it really feels like it's, it's coming from a place of love. I, I am so, so convinced that what I believe in is so true and therefore so good. Not giving it to you would be cruel. I, I want you to have it because I want you to have goodness in your life. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, like you said, if, if we can approach sharing goodness with other people with love and not because I want people to be more like me and not inspired by a fear that other people are different than myself then then that's really nice. Yeah, it's really authentic. Now, just as a last caveat before we finish today, I I don't say, I don't know who's going to be listening to this, of course, but I I don't say that that's not present in other religions. I mean, it just depends on the person, to be honest. Like, I, I can imagine, I've seen Mormons, for example, who seem to be um, really happy people. But that would be a super overstatement. I mean, that's crazy to even say. But in my own experience, the only thing that I would say, the difference is that when they're trying to proselytize people, even though I think they're doing it because of the same idea, like, you know, I care for you. But there's a certain lack of, first of all, it's it doesn't seem to be like I care for you as a person. Like, it's more like I care for the goodness of your soul. I need. Yeah, I like I we have like a task to do and that is to proselytize as many people as possible because then something else will happen like you know the second coming or you know whatever it is and that kind of takes away from the empathetic aspect to it i think it's not that it shouldn't be that it should be because i really care for you and like you said originally i'm not going to do it in a way that's going to be too overwhelming for you because i care for you right because i care for you as a person period Mm -hmm. end it's not about Dot. Them doing what what I want them to do. It's not about them suddenly converting and becoming, in essence, uh, the model of what I'm talking about. It's because I care so much about you as a person. I would like to share something good with you. Right. And that could take a week, and that could take a month, and that could take a year. And our, in our experience in Chile, having had tons of people at our table from all different types of um, places and religion and background, it was never about having them come and then expecting them to suddenly take on Shabbat or take on eating um, kosher foods or anything. It was just about creating friendships of, of real care and, and authentic love where it's like, we're so happy, we're so happy you're here with us. Let's let, let us share some goodness together. Cause that's what it's about. Right. I mean, it's a tall order, but it's, it's not so tall. It, I think if you reach deep down, if all of us reach deep down, we'll we'll realize, and this is the invitation, of course, to realize how rich our tradition is. And hopefully we can all come to a point where we say, wow, this is really amazing. And if you do a little comparison and looking around what else there is in the world, I think um, we can feel very, very proud about and and hopefully even ecstatic about um, the tradition that we have. And when you think of it, you'll want to, share it with somebody, perhaps only aspects of it, but you'll certainly want to share certain aspects of it. And, and again, you know, we do it in a, in a sense of um, also of, with our eyes wide open. I don't, I feel that another contrast with perhaps other approaches and other religions is that 
we're not just taking a simplistic idea. Uh, we're taking a huge idea. I mean, the ideas in the Torah are huge. They're very interconnected. They're um, they're very big. They're not just one idea or two. They're like many ideas. But like you said, we're not here to introduce all the ideas at once. But when you do it piecemeal, people automatically see like, oh, this is connected to that. And this is connected to like, something really big out there. So hopefully everyone will get inspired with this um, this message. This is a big, uh, a tall order. But... I think um, in today's day and age, it's one of the greatest chasadim. It's one of the greatest and probably most important chasadim. Acts of kindness. Acts of kindness that we can do um, for our fellow Jews and for non-Jews when it comes to spreading those universal truths that we feel very specially connected to and just fortunate to possess. So thanks for joining us. And we hope to see you and uh, see you and hear you from you uh, after our next podcast as well please feel free to give us your feedback we always love hearing from you guys if there are any questions we ask that you didn't answer or you have beef with we'd love to hear about it bring on the questions bring on the beef and um, after this wonderful discussion on sharing ideas and proselytizing with love big hugs to everybody Um, lots of love from here and uh, have a lovely Shabbat and weekend